0: One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, or could also say, which means the rock. We're going to begin tonight, God willing, looking at uh, the life of Simon Peter as we find that described for us in Scripture, primarily in the Gospels. There are so many fascinating things about Simon Peter uh, that bear uh, study that we find such a variety of experiences and a variety of characteristics, indeed, about this man that he proves in many respects to be such a fascinating character in the descriptions of scripture. We tend perhaps to focus on the more negative aspects of Peter's character as we find his failures, his lapses, his um, um, speaking out of turn, if you like, those sort of features of his life as they're described. Perhaps we major on these and that's uh, itself understandable because in one way it's gratifying to find these things uh, and somewhat consoling to ourselves to find such failures and such lapses on the part of someone like Peter who was one of the great leaders of the New Testament church because it really reminds us that uh, there is no one perfect as a disciple not even the apostles and not even Peter, one of the most prominent apostles. But there are so many aspects of Peter as a man, as a disciple, as a servant of Jesus, that are positive emphases in Scripture as well. Here's a man who is absolutely committed to the Lord, most of the time apart from what we read of his denial. Here's a man who has a natural a tendency to speak out for the Lord. Here's a man who's full of energy for the Lord, an energy which at times really needs to be curbed. Here's a man who is brought before us in the Scriptures as ready to defend his Lord, even sometimes drawing the sword to come to the Lord's physical defense. But all of these natural characteristics in Peter, as well as the spiritual learning that he needs to uh, engage in, they're all part of our study of Peter's life. And it's as you see his life developing, as the Scripture brings out these characteristics, that you find so much that is useful for ourselves in terms of uh, telling us or giving us an insight into what is a disciple of Jesus? What do you do when your discipleship sometimes stutters and even fails. How then do you anticipate the Lord dealing with that? What does it mean to actually come and make a confession of Jesus in the presence of other people the way Peter did? How do we feel when the Scripture gives us the assurance that we are indeed disciples of Jesus? When the Word of Christ comes into our hearts to say, You are indeed one of mine, but you need to deal with certain things yet before you're perfect. They're all features of the study of Simon Peter in the scripture, and of course, one of the main things that we'll come across again and again and, uh, and build up as we go along, God willing, is how the grace of God harnesses and shapes and directs the qualities of this man and actually deals with the, the rough side of him as well, if you like, so that uh, things become much smoother than they are in the beginning of his discipleship. Where the rough edges of his life are dealt with by God, by Jesus, by God, so that he comes more and more as he's sanctified by the grace of God, he turns out to be the great leader that you find in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And all of that is down to the grace of God and its power, in its purpose, in his life. There are two things here as we look at this first study of Simon's introduction to Jesus, Simon being introduced to Jesus Christ. First of all, we'll look at how he was brought to Jesus, because that itself forms a part of the passage. And then, secondly, we'll look at Simon's experience in meeting Jesus, uh, how Jesus spoke to him, particularly, and what he said about him. Uh, how you, first of all, how Simon was brought to Jesus. And in fact, that is as much to do with Andrew as it is to do with Simon Peter himself. Because Andrew plays such a major part in the way that Peter was brought to Jesus and then from that came to know Jesus for himself. And in Simon being brought to Jesus, the two things within that we can look at briefly are, first of all, Andrew's own enlightenment and then secondly, Andrew's evangelism. His enlightenment, first of all, comes from the way that he began as a follower and as a disciple or a pupil, if you like, of John the Baptist. Because we're told there that these two disciples of John the Baptist heard John saying this about Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God, or earlier on in the passage, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when the two disciples they began then to follow Jesus one of them was Andrew so Jesus turned round and he saw them following and they said and he said to them what are you seeking now there's a question there are two disciples having turned from if you like the old testament discipleship of John and now coming to be followers of Jesus and Jesus instantly turns round to them and saying what's the purpose of this what's the meaning of this what is it you're seeking and there's a fascinating interaction between Jesus and themselves, full of the theology that John then expands on in the remainder of his gospel. Because as they hear this question put to them, they then said, um, Rabbi, where are you staying? In the older version, it's, Where do you abide? Now, that's one of the great words of John's gospel. Abiding or staying, because John uses it in terms of our discipleship and our connection with Jesus and the need to abide in Jesus and to abide in his love. But here is the way in which it's put. What are you seeking? And then they say, where are you staying? Where can we find your dwelling place? And then he says, come and see. So they came, they stayed with him. That day. And from then on, Andrew began to look for others to bring to Jesus. It was that particular episode that convinced him this was the Christ. And as he was convinced that this was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the promised Savior that they had been anticipating all the years of the Old Testament, the first thing he does once he has found this Messiah, once this Messiah has made himself known to them, to him, once he has become convinced that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Messiah, he goes and he finds his own brother, and he brings him to Jesus. In other words, Andrew's enlightenment led to Andrew's evangelism. And that's one of the great points of discipleship, not just in studying the life of Peter, but in the whole theme of discipleship in the Bible. We become disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, pupils of Jesus, not to keep all that learning to ourselves, not so as to internalize our experience and leave it there. It has to have an avenue by which it reaches out to other people. Andrew became an evangelist, a witness to Jesus from the moment he became his disciple. Isn't there something in that for you and for me tonight? Are we trying to keep our discipleship hidden? Is there something in our experience of Jesus and being convinced that he is indeed not only the Messiah, but our Savior, my Savior? And if he is, then This is our responsibility. This is our privilege. And this is what we as a congregation seek to do in different ways as we have come to know exactly who this is, what the import of his life is, this Jesus. So we seek to reach out to make it known to others. That's the whole point of evangelism. That's that's why we do it. We don't do it in exactly the same way. But that's the rationale behind so much of what this congregation is doing. Indeed, you could say all of what this congregation is doing, whether it's in Sunday school or even in creche or parent and toddler, whether it reaches through into Sunday school or Bible class or caber phase or women's groups or whatever it is. It's all about this Lamb of God. It's all about seeking to make known that this Jesus is, in fact, the Savior, as was promised. By God, all these years. And you see, as he engages in this evangelism, it's really a description of what we would call personal evangelism, isn't it? Here's this man on his own. He, he's not directed by anybody else to do this he doesn't wait until someone from the church comes along and says okay it's all right for you now to go and witness to Jesus and tell other uh, witness about Jesus and tell others about him he immediately goes and finds his own brother Simon and says to him we have found the messiah we have found the christ we've discovered who this christ is he's jesus of nazareth the son of joseph but that's who he is Now, this is interesting uh, because you find it following through into the, the next part of the passage in uh, verse 45, where Philip, we're told there, he found Nathanael. There's something about this man, isn't there, this, um, um, this, this Andrew? He comes, and uh, uh, when Jesus goes to Galilee, he finds Philip, and Philip finds Nathaniel. So you see the same thing's repeated in the experience of, of Philip and the first thing Philip does is goes and finds Nathaniel and says the same thing to him as uh, Andrew said to Peter, his brother, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a disparaging kind of remark because in Nathaniel's mind, nothing of that caliber can come out of Nazareth. It's not the kind of place where you expect someone as important as the Messiah to originate from. But what does Philip do? Well, he says, come and see. And that links you with what Jesus said to these two disciples of John when they turned and began to follow him. Where do you stay? Where are you staying? Come and see. And it follows through into the way in which Andrew dealt with Peter to He's really bringing him to the Messiah. He's bringing him to Jesus. In other words, he's saying, he's uh, by that doing the same as as, uh, is in the statement, come and see. And indeed, that opens up. It's not something we're going to go into at all tonight. I'll leave it with you for your further study of it yourselves. But this theme of coming and seeing Jesus is so important in John and as you come and see Jesus for yourself, from that, if you like, emanates the whole spirit and work of discipleship. Think of the woman in in, in, uh, in um, the the chapter four of, of, of John, the woman of Samaria. She came and Jesus spoke to her at the well, as you know, and revealed himself to her to be uh, revealed himself to be the Messiah. What did she do? She left her water pot. The primary purpose that she came to draw water was forgotten. She left it there. She discovered something else. New water, spiritual living water. So she wanted to go and tell others about it. She went to the people of her own town. And what did she say to them? Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did is not this the Christ. Chapter 9 is a chapter Entirely taken up with a blind man who was cured by Jesus. Which fits in with the whole emphasis of coming to see Jesus. And coming, Jesus coming to remove the blindness from our eyes that we have naturally. So as to see him as he really is and for what he really is. Chapter 12 and verse 21. The Greeks that were coming to Jerusalem at that time. This is the request they made. Sirs, we would see Jesus. Chapter 17, 24, coming near the end of Christ's great prayer for his people. Father, I will that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may see my glory, which you have given me, which of course is heaven. 1935. A description of the cross and the one who's writing about this and his experience, this John, this disciple, the one who witnessed these things. He saw and now he is bearing testimony to it. He saw the side of Jesus pierced with the spear and blood and water coming forth. And then go right ahead to chapter 20 and verses 6 and 8 in that chapter where you find um, Peter, one of those Disciples, along with the beloved disciple, to come to the tomb where Christ's body had been laid. It's now no longer there. The tomb is open, but Christ's body isn't there. So Peter firstly went in, and he saw and believed. Then the other disciple followed him, and he went in, and he saw, and he believed. See, there it is, that whole strand of teaching, seeing Jesus united to believing in him, seeing Jesus united to following him, becoming his disciple. Is there anyone here tonight who has not seen Jesus? I don't mean seen with your eyes literally, of course but seen him and appreciated and coming to know him for what he really is and who he really is. Oh yes, you see him on the pages of the Bible. You see him in the preaching of the gospel. You see him in the lives of God's people. But do you see him for yourself? Have you come to really see him? Have you come spiritually with the eyes of your soul to be convinced that this is the Savior for you? To see Jesus that way is so crucially important. Because there are far too many that really stop short of that, as if it wasn't required, as if it was enough just to see and know about Him in the account of the Gospel. We would see Jesus tonight. And this is his invitation, as he was saying to these two disciples. The very thing that came uh, to convince Andrew in order that he come to find his brother Peter. Come and see. That's what God is saying to us all. That's what we say as we reach out to others as well. There will be objections, such as Nathaniel. Can any good thing come of this? Is this really relevant to 2017? Come and see. Come and judge for yourself. That's what you say to people. Don't judge it from outside. Come and see from within. Don't describe the church. Tell them from what you read in the papers of what you might believe, what other people tell you. Come and see for yourself. It's part of our evangelistic emphasis that you don't leave people just to have a caricature in their mind of what the church is, or of what Jesus is, or what the gospel is. You always put before them, well, come and see for yourself. Don't denounce until you've come to test it. Come and see. And so he took him, you see, to Jesus. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Now that too is interesting, isn't it? And it's not just interesting, but it's significant in our dealings with people and with one another, patiently, tactfully, lovingly, kindly. This is our objective. This is our objective to bring people to Jesus, not just to leave them in our companionship. Of course, this is sometimes going to take some time. This is going to require building up relationships. This is going to require people to getting to know us as we really are. By that I mean in the ordinary things of everyday life. And coming to see where our Christian faith fits into all of that. But this is the objective. That through all of your witnessing, your speaking, you bring them to Jesus. And whenever we're speaking to people about Jesus... Let's always try and bring them to Jesus. Whatever objections we come across, let's try and learn. I know it's not easy, but it's something we have to try and learn. To bring them to Jesus himself. To find out for themselves who he is. What he is like. Because the moment we come to know him for ourselves, that's when the light comes on. That's when things change. That's when our prejudice is challenged and removed. Because we see him for ourselves as the people to whom that woman in chapter 4 witnessed, the people of her town. As they were streaming across the plains there to come to Jesus after this woman had said, come and see, they came. And their testimony then was, we now know that this is indeed the Messiah. Why? Because we have heard him for ourselves. It's not just depending, they said, on your testimony, we know because we have put it to the test. We have heard it for ourselves. We know that this is who he is. So there's... Simon being brought to Jesus and all that's in that in terms of Andrew's role in Simon coming to know Jesus. Andrew's own enlightenment, how he came to be convinced as to who Jesus was, and from that Andrew's evangelism, he found his brother. He invited him, uh, he, he, he first of all spoke to him and said, we found the Messiah, explained to him what his experience had been. And then he said, Uh, he brought him to Jesus. Secondly, let's look at Simon's experience in meeting with Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Well, there are two things in that as well, briefly. First of all, he was examined by Jesus. And, uh, Not just examined by Jesus, but in a way that let Peter know that this is exactly what was happening. It's not explained in a lot of words, but when you look at what's there, that's obviously what's happening. Jesus looked at him, and it's actually more to do with Jesus looking into him than it is Jesus looking at him. This is not Jesus just looking at something from the outside. Uh, This is Jesus looking into Peter's soul, into Peter's character. This is Jesus looking into Peter's future, into Peter's discipleship, into Peter and how he needs to develop. And he's saying to him, so this is who you are, Simon. Yes, son of Jonas, I know that. But I'm telling you, from now on, you'll be called Kephas. Now, when you come to Jesus, one of the things that you must expect is that he will look into your soul. You don't come across Christ in the gospel or Christ through the Holy Spirit brought to you and uh, that work going on in your soul and you don't expect um, anything less than that Christ will actually examine you thoroughly. That's a living examination. And Peter had to learn that inevitably when you come to Jesus, you're examined Or at least you're, you're brought to know that Jesus knows all about you already. That's what's happening with this interview, with this meeting. Because Peter is learning right from the very outset that this Jesus that he now comes to know as his Messiah and his Savior is the one that knows everything about him. Peter doesn't really need to tell him. He doesn't need to be concerned that somehow or other some aspect of his character has missed the notice of Jesus and he needs to remind Jesus of this or that that he needs to take account of. It's all known right from day one. And how comforting that is. Nothing in your life is going to catch Jesus out. Nothing in your need is going to be beyond his reckoning, beyond his knowledge, beyond his competency to deal with it. And Peter must learn increasingly as he goes on to depend upon the knowledge of Jesus, the way that Jesus knows him so thoroughly and so is able to so thoroughly deal with him as an individual. I think of that wonderful passage where he comes to be interviewed by Jesus in regard to his love in the final chapter of John. He has denied his Lord three times. It's been a grievous episode in his life. He's rather aimlessly gone fishing. And then Jesus appears on the shore. And as one of the disciples says, It is the Lord. It was probably John. Peter, being Peter, just throws himself into the sea and makes his way towards Jesus. And after they've had breakfast together, the disciples and Jesus, he takes Peter aside or he singles him out and says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Three times he asks him, do you love me? And on the third occasion, what does Peter say in reply? Well, he just throws himself on the superior knowledge of Christ and he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And what he really meant by that, surely, was that There was no point in trying to hide anything from Jesus. He knew it all already. He knew about his lapse. He knew about the failure. He knew about the circumstances. He knew what had caused it. He knew Peter's heart at that very moment that he denied him. But here he was. He's being restored. And he's being restored by this interview with Jesus, bringing out of him a renewed confession. But he's not relying on his own capacity to explain it. It's as if he's saying to Jesus, Lord, I don't need the words. You know all things. You know despite what's happened. You know that I love you. You rely, you see, upon the superior knowledge and the competency of Jesus. You are Simon, the son of John. He's looking into his heart. He knows his character. And as he does that, So it's a lesson for ourselves. Who do you want to look after your life? Who do you want your future, whose hands do you want your future to be placed in? What's the best thing for the development of our character? Is it to give ourselves into the hands of Jesus or to try and look after ourselves Is it to put something into the hands of Jesus by way of an acknowledgement, but still retain something for ourselves, imagining that we have the competence somehow to see our way through? No, this is saying to us, leave it all to him. Put yourself entirely in his hands. Let his superior knowledge, let his perfect knowledge, let his competence as the saviour Take care of every aspect of your life. That doesn't mean all the troubles will go away overnight. It doesn't mean the testings will actually stop the moment you come to know Jesus. It wasn't so as we'll see for this man, Peter. He had to be corrected many times. He had to be spoken to by Jesus many times. At one time, Jesus spoke to him even in terms that said, Get behind me, Satan. Satan. But he's learning from the very day he met him. that the very best thing he can do is let himself be governed by Jesus. Let his past and his present and all his future be in the hands of this Messiah. So you are Simon, the son of John. He knows that. You shall be called Cephas. This is your future. You will be a rock. And the following, uh, the following that we read of in the Gospels, Jesus, uh, Peter following Jesus, is a following where this is going to be worked out in his life, that he is indeed Kephas, he's rock. His life's going to be shaped and developed by this Lord, by this Messiah that's come to take hold of his life, and that's going to use him so mightily in his cause and in his church. Peter wouldn't have been the man he was without all of these turns and shapings in his life. And when you and I find the imperfection that you, def, that you um, inevitably find in your life, when you and I find the failure that comes into our life from time to time, as it does, when you and I are afraid or that Satan tries to persuade you because that's in your life, you can't possibly be a genuine, true disciple of Jesus. Look to Peter. Look to the way that all of these developments, even things that he ought never to have done or said, but in the hands of Jesus, they were all part of the shaping of his life. Until he turned into the spiritual giant that you find in the early chapters of Acts. That doesn't mean his failures ceased at that point. He had a dispute with Paul at one time. He needed to be corrected right through to the end of his life as you and I do. But Jesus told him, your future is in my hands. You shall be called Cephas. That's the name that I'm giving you. Peter would have known the Old Testament very well. And as he's examined by Jesus, so he's taught by Jesus of the significance of this change of name. Peter would have known, I'm sure, that um, the Old Testament contained an account of the change of naming. Uh, For example, with Abraham um, changed into Abraham. Of Jacob, uh, his name being changed into Israel. And he would have known the significance of, of these changes for these men, for these patriarchs, for these men of God, because God was changing their names in relation to how he was going to situate them and place them and use them in the development of his church and of his cause. And here is Peter following that saying, hearing Jesus saying, you shall be called Cephas, which means the rock. In other words, um, He is indicating to him even at the outset, though he'll explain it much more later, I'm going to use you, Peter. You're going to be one of my servants, one of my apostles, one of the leaders of my church. Cephas, and the meaning of Cephas virtually vanished when he denied the Lord three times. Doesn't appear to be a rock there, does he? Nevertheless, he's the stronger for it through his recovery. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said to him? As you find in Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired you that he may sift you as wheat. That means all the disciples. But I have prayed for you. Indicating this Kephas, this, this change that I indicated, the beginning of your discipleship, Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. And when you have recovered, when you are restored, whatever translation we give the word, sometimes it's, it's um, converted. It really means turned round, recovered again. Strengthen your brethren. Peter was a better man have recovered from his lapses than he was before. Strange as that may seem. Why is that the case? Because that's simply how Jesus does things. That's the kind of management of lives that Jesus himself carries out and carries through. Assuring us too that our future is safe, In the hands of the Lord. That in fact the future is far better for us in His hands than anywhere else. Safe with Christ, secure with Christ, useful for Christ. And whatever is put into Christ's hands, the exciting thing is. You never know how it's going to turn out as he uses it. Sometimes, indeed very often, it'll be quite beyond your own expectations and the expectation of others. People might say to you, who are you to be a disciple of Jesus? Why do you think that you would have anything to contribute to the gospel, to the cause of Christ? They might have said the same of Peter. He's far too impetuous. He's far too ready to speak without thinking. He's far too vulnerable in his own sense of self-sufficiency. But he's in the hands of Jesus. And Jesus is turning him and shaping and developing him into the apostle he came to be. When Jesus fed the 5,000, it wasn't at all obvious that A little bit of food available in the loaves and the fish. We're going to feed more than just a few of that 5,000. But it's interesting how when you read the passage in the Bible, in the four Gospels, uh, the account you have of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's a very prominent miracle in each of the Gospels. When Jesus was told about there only being these few loaves and these fish. He said, bring them here to me. So they brought them to Jesus, same as Andrew did to Peter. And as Jesus took them in his hands and blessed them, he then gave it out to the disciples to give to the multitude. You see what happens? What goes into Jesus' hands, comes out very differently to what went in. And when Jesus takes it upon himself to use a life, a life that's been put in his hands, don't ever think that you know exactly how that's going to turn out. Don't ever think that that's not going to result in great things. The exciting thing about being a disciple is you never know how much Jesus is going to achieve through you and by you. And that's why tonight, for you and for me, the best thing possible is that we are in the hands of Christ, that we are disciples of this Messiah, that we are ready to serve him as he will use us. The obedience is our side of it. How it turns out is the Lord's part of it. And both are important. So tonight, as disciples of Jesus, let's wait upon the same energy that Peter came to know. And tonight, if you're not yet a disciple of Jesus. Well, come and see. Come and respond to his call, to his invitation, to his promise. Because whenever we find obedience emphasized in Scripture, it's always abundantly followed by the promises of God. Let's pray. Lord, our gracious God, help us to know more of the privilege it is in serving you and being your disciples. We pray that you'd make us increasingly teachable so that we may follow you in whatever way you direct us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that it may be our concern to know more of you as we continue to follow you. Bless, we pray the message of your word to each of us this evening. You know us, each one, most perfectly. You read our thoughts and our minds, even as we've been here this evening, O Lord. And as you did to Simon long ago, so you are able to do to us and for us too, to make us into the kind of people who will serve you and bring benefit to others by coming to know you. Receive our thanks, we pray, Cleanse us from all our sin. Accept us freely for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let's conclude our service this evening singing in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And that's on page 413. Singing verses 156 through to 160. The tune is Martyrdom. That's on page 413. O Lord, both great and manifold, thy tender mercies be. According to thy judgments just, revive and quicken me. My persecutors many are and foes that do combine, yet from thy testimonies pure my heart doth not decline. Verses 156 to 160 to God's praise.
1: O Lord, both great and mighty.
0: to the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.